Today, we pay tribute to a legend that is too sweet. Oye, me chico, on this episode of What a Time to Be Alive. I'm Lou, and I grew up in New York City in the 1980s on a steady diet of comic books, Flame on! cartoons, rock and roll, and sci-fi films. Flash forward to the present, and all the geek properties I got picked on for enjoying as a kid are now creating fans globally in the form of major studio films and hit series. My fellow geeks, we have won. And to that I say, what a time to be alive. Hey, yo. I'm Lou Acosta. This is What a Time to Be Alive, the Geek Culture Podcast. And this episode is a very special one that well, that, that I really wish weren't so. Because this past week, the wrestling sports entertainment world lost a legend. As many of you may already know, Scott Hall passed away on Monday, March 14th at the age of 63. And um, now the descriptor for our show touts the Geek Culture Podcast. And over time, that's encompassed many of the things we're all passionate about, whether it be comic book culture, cartoons, rock and roll, and how some of those things became fully realized into the blockbuster films and properties we're blessed with today. So when talking about passions, wrestling is no exception. Wrestling was a huge part of my life. Having grown up in the heyday of the rock and wrestling era, I was at the very first WrestleMania at Madison Square Garden as a kid. I used to record WWF Saturday Night Main Event. Seeing wrestling evolve over the years through the new generation and attitude eras, different promotions popping up, and, and further, has always been really rewarding as a fan. Certainly, there, there's a ton of wrestling podcasts out there, but again, wrestling is a huge ingredient in that pop culture, geek culture stew that really helped shape me and fed my soul. Wrestling certainly holds its place firmly in the pop culture zeitgeist and shows no signs of going anywhere. Suffice to say, Scott Hall was a tremendous part of what made sports entertainment so compelling in the past 30 years. A four-time Intercontinental Champion and an agent of change during WWE's New Generation era in the 90s, most remember him as Razor Ramon. The latter match that he had with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 10 is still heralded as one of the best storytelling moments in the history of sports entertainment. Jumping ship to Ted Turner's WCW in 1996, he helped lead the revolution as one of the outsiders that spawned the New World Order and launched a competitive time in the industry known as the Monday Night Wars. Through personal struggles, he managed to come out on top and became a two-time inductee into the WWE Hall of Fame. A true entertainer, a class act. In this episode of What a Time to Be Alive, we remember the legacy of Scott Hall. But... I am not headed down to the squared circle alone. I need backup. So, this match is scheduled for one fall. Coming down the aisle from the Lower East Side, weighing in a combined weight of 385 pounds, may not be accurate. Our first guest host is known as Purple Best Wishes Shirt Guy in the Major Wrestling Figure Podcast community. He's also had a brief backyard wrestling run 
an epic feud with our other guest host. Man, we gotta get into that. Mr. Ron Bosch. Ron, thanks so much for being a part of this. How's it going, Lou? <laughs> our second guest host, a lifelong wrestling fan who followed his passion hard and got involved as an announcer and voice in 2014, He's called matches for, oh, wow, just going down the list, EC3, Kenny Omega, Tommy Dreamer, X-Pac and Kevin Nash, Sonny Kiss, Alpha Jr., Rhino, MJF, and more. He currently holds the record for the most backstage interviews in the state of New Jersey. Cheyenne, The Voice, Ortiz. Cheyenne, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, Lou. This is a, a real treat to do this. I'm glad that I was uh, selected. I'm honored. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. But guys, before we get rolling on this, first, Ron, I got to ask you for the full backstory on the nickname Purple Best Wishes Shirt Guy. It, it what, what the hell that means? Um, <laughs> basically, uh, the Major Wrestling Figure Podcast hosted by Matt Cardona, Brian Myers, formerly Zack Ryder and Kurt Hawkins. Uh, they do live shows every couple months. Uh, their podcast just focuses on wrestling figures. And... They had a long, uh, show in Long Island. Uh, they have like an inside joke on the show. Like whenever uh, Matt would sign an autograph, he would just write best wishes. So they named the bar Best Wishes Bar and Grill. And everybody had a gray shirt with the logo for the, the bar for the night. And like I went on Pro Wrestling Tees and the only options they had was like a light gray one, a purple one and a yellow one. And I'm not a fan of light gray just because it was like, the middle of July. And if I get sweaty, it's going to show. So and I wasn't, I didn't want the yellow shirt. So I got the purple shirt. And I guess like as Cardona kept drinking throughout the night, we just kept drinking Long Island iced teas. He just kept complimenting the shirt. Like, and I, I didn't really think anything of it. And then like, as the weeks went on on their, on their podcast, they kept like bringing me up and mentioning me like, oh, that, that guy with the purple best wishes shirt, uh, purple best wishes shirt guy. Like he was there, he was there till like three in the morning. And, and like, they would keep mentioning me if I like commented on something and I, I kind of just like ran with the nickname. I was like, you know what? Like they never called you by name. It was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Like I was like, I guess, I guess this is my name now. So let me just run with it and have fun with it. So <laughs> fantastic. I mean, you're, you're kind of a diva. It sounds like, I mean, cause you had to go with the purple, uh, <laughs> but, by, but, but by the way, Bosh purple's my favorite color as is evident by my purple stapler. So, and everything else that's purple in here. Luckily it is mine too. Hey man, purple's the color of Kings. That Cheyenne, the record holder for most backstage interviews in New Jersey. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, that's while it's self-proclaimed, I do have several wrestlers that that are like, you know, not for nothing. That could be very, very true, considering how many you've done. And by backstage interviews, for, for those of you who are familiar or vaguely familiar with wrestling, uh, it would be the main gene spot doing the backstage interviews uh, before or after a match. Um when I first started in the wrestling business, I would have to do them for every match because DVDs were still prevalent. They were still a uh, secondary income for independent wrestling promotions. So I would do backstage interviews for one or sometimes both opponents for every match. And I did that for the first five years of my career. And if you had eight to 10 matches on the card, do the math of how many that I possibly have done in just the first five years. Now you take into account that now sometimes I work uh, four places a month, like I am this month. Um, and I'm getting asked more to do backstage interviews and commentary sometimes. So um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
it's a real thrill. And that's kind of, I think I probably started doing backstage interviews before I started doing commentary and show hosting. Tremendous. You, you ever get involved with the storylines? Like you ever take a chair shot? Yeah, actually a couple times off for, well, for backyard wrestling too much, but for the indies, um, every once in a while, uh, for the indies, I mean, I've been pushed a couple times, uh, more than a couple times. Mikey Whipwreck. Oh, well, no, that was, I was a manager for that. Like, I also, uh, I, I took a Stone Cold Stunner from Mikey Whipwreck because I, I did managing before the pandemic up in Binghamton, New York. And I took a Stunner, a Whippersnapper from Mikey Whipwreck. But for the interviews, I get pushed a lot of time. It's real cheap heat, if you will. Like, ah, get out of here, Bozo, and I'm taking over. I get that done. Like, people do that to me at 7-Eleven now. That's how often it gets done to me in uh, interviews. I love it. Um, one time... I had to do like the mean gene cell. Somebody did a swerve and I had to like flail my arms in the air and, you know, run away. And that got a great reaction in the locker room. <laughs> and there was another time in Brooklyn where I was ring announcing a show and I was the replacement ring announcer. And I actually got booed all night. The crowd was not happy that their usual ring announcer was not available. So the usual ring announcer, um, magically appeared during the show after saying that he was unavailable and now it's an indie show it's not like there's a gorilla position he's visible so they're literally booing me cheering him and the promoter gets this bright idea like hey i want him to hit you um we're gonna do an angle and i'm like okay what's the payoff like if i'm gonna do this tuxedo match you know i'm gonna i want to be prepared so i had to get hit in the back of the head with a microphone one night for a one-off and uh, the place, you know, you know, erupted like if it was WrestleMania because their favorite announcer then attacked me and then took over the main event. I love it, and I'm I'm also glad that you're you're alive and well to uh, to do this with us as a result of all that. It, here's a fun fact, though, Ron, Cheyenne, you both hosted your own wrestling podcast, the Four Live Podcast, and that this may be your first time together on a podcast in five years. Yes. Yeah, just about. It was uh, like spring of 2017. Yeah. The last time we did our show. Yeah. Guys, this is like this is like when Frank Sinatra reunited Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis on the Labor Day telethon. <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm, I'm hoping it's not as awkward, though. But I, conversely, I may be the only guy here old enough to get that reference. But no, no, I, 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 totally I think Cheyenne may only be in his early 30s, but I think he's older than you, Lou. OK. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Old soul. Got it. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. donate a check to uh, What a Time to Be Alive on behalf of AJ and uh, Dean Lambert, okay? That's how much I know that reference. Uh, I, I I will take your money. I met I met Cheyenne when he was about 13, and he already I felt like a 50-year-old. I love it. I love <laughs> it. So wait, guys, am, am, I, am I bringing the mega powers of podcasting back together? Essentially. I mean, we talk every day, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so that being said... You guys are super fans, but you also have deep history together. Ron, tell me more about that history and how wrestling was instrumental. And, and furthermore, we need to know about this epic backyard wrestling feud. Yeah, so I was, this was back in 2004. I was wrestling in uh, that playground in the Lower East Side, Coleman Park, under the, it's like right by the bridge. Uh, I was wrestling as J.R. Scar, which was short for Junior Scarface, and we'll, we'll get into that a little later where that where that came from. But uh, I think, yeah, a few months into me wrestling, uh, one of the guys 
told us his cousin was going to come in to announce, uh, which was Cheyenne. Um, I mean, he was, I was 17 and Cheyenne was about 14. So there was a, a bit of an age difference, but Cheyenne was probably the most mature person we had there. And I think from the beginning, like he was one of the few people I can like talk to and, and have like a complete conversation with. Uh, and just like his knowledge of wrestling, like I, like I was probably like the most knowledgeable person in the group until he came along. So it was fun to have somebody that I can talk to about wrestling and knew more than I did and I can learn from. And then during the summer, uh, there was a few weeks where I wasn't able to come in. So uh, like I wasn't feeling well. So we did an angle where I was like laid out in like one of those big orange traffic cones. And for months I was coming in, like trying to figure out who attacked me. And like Cheyenne would interview me on his segment. And I think it, it wasn't until like the day of that we decided it was going to be Cheyenne that attacked me. I think it was it was originally going to be his cousin who that. that yeah. And then he been, couldn't make it. Yeah. that And that would have been a terrible. I mean, Cheyenne wasn't experienced in wrestling, but he was so good on the mic that it, it made up for all of that. Uh, his cousin was neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, we did the angle where Cheyenne finally revealed that he was the one that attacked me. And it kind of it just went off from there. We had a few matches against each other. I lost that first match. So that's when I became like the Undertaker inspired character. And then from there, we were going to join forces. But I ended up getting injured. And then it was kind of just like on and off. We would have matches like every every couple months. We somehow like ended up in matches together. But the best was that everybody expected our matches to be train wrecks, but they actually got better and better. Yeah. And yeah, then we just, we, we each had like, if anything, I enjoyed like the tag team feud more. We were, uh, I was in a tag team with my childhood friend. He was in a tag team with one of the other guys and it was like supposed to culminate in a big ladder match. Yeah. So we just kind of always stayed connected. Um, it was one of those where, like, even towards the end, we weren't really, like, enemies. We would just, like, have matches and hug at the end. And yeah. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun, though. And I think that's what spawned our, our friendship from, uh, from there. And now, we're all here because we have a deep love for Scott Hall and all the great moments he gave us. When he passed last week, I thought of you guys first. Cheyenne, starting with you, what was your wrestling gateway? And, and how did you come to be a fan of Scott Hall? Uh, my gateway was my brother's VHS collection that dated probably as far back as uh, 83. So I'm born in 90, but I have this um, more than um, fair tape library of, of the rock and wrestling, uh, golden era wrestling as it's referred to. But I also got to live the transition to the new gen. And I had all the tapes of the early uh, Monday night raw uh shows i had them all and for this kid who really wasn't into superheroes or wasn't into the biggest animated films wrestling was it for me here's a great example i'm born in 90 i saw the adams family i didn't know raul julia was puerto rican until i was like 20 right um and other hollywood actors and stuff like that but the first you know Spanish Latin man that I ever saw on a television screen in my life was Razor Ramon. And I have a deep affinity for wrestlers like Razor, um, Dustin Rhodes, uh, Mark Merrow that I've literally seen their whole career. You know, uh, I didn't live Scott Hall in the AWA, but then later on through, through tapes and stuff, um, I, I got to, to see and catch up to this totally different, um, 
era uh, of wrestling that was the early 80s because it's night and day by by comparison. Um, so I got to see Scott Hall in a lot of those early Monday Night Raw matches. While it's not in chronological order, again, at the tape library, the first match that I remember like succinctly has got to be him versus Rick Martel when the uh, when the Intercontinental title was uh was vacated and 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 it's one of my favorite matches ever and if you've ever if you've ever not seen it then rectify that in your life because it's needed um it's incredible on both their parts Martel is double Scott's age at the time and the two of them just put on a story it's one of the best razor razor's edge finishes ever also the way he just completely drops Martel you think that he's paralyzed um of course, Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, one, two, three, kid, right? Which not only led into this awesome feud, but it then led into a feud where he earned Razor's respect, he being the one, two, three, kid. And one, two, three, kid would go on a feud with Ted DiBiase. And that was the gateway for one, two, three, kid and Razor Ramon to be an on screen tag team. Um, another great match, SummerSlam 93, Ted DiBiase versus Razor Ramon. They opened the show. So, yeah, just those early uh, Monday Night Raws. Um, I don't believe Bosch, if I'm wrong, or either of you guys, if I'm wrong, you can, you can correct me. I don't think Scott's on the first one, but I think he comes in about uh, after episode five, right. Or, or something like that. It's, he's in like the first handful, but he's not in the first episode. Cause I remember him winning a battle Royal by hiding. <laughs> and that might be his, that might be his first time on raw. I could be wrong, but I think he had a promo on the first row. Like an in-ring promo with Vince wearing that colorful shirt. Okay, so okay, that that's I know he had one after one, two, three kid after that loss. But so maybe I might not have it's been a while since I saw the first raw, but I remember also it's Manhattan Center. They did a 20-man battle royal. And Giant Gonzalez at the time was, you know, the big thing in WWE. And there's this 20-man battle royal going on. Everybody's in the ring. Giant Gonzalez comes out out of nowhere. He's not in the battle royal. And he starts clearing house. They can't declare him the winner because he's not in it. And they can't DQ him because it's a battle royal. So Gonzalez clears the ring. And then Razor, who everybody forgot about, went underneath the bottom rope and hid while Gonzalez is clearing house (laughs) and rolls back in like, hey, I'm still here. I won. I love that move. Always. Yeah. Always. So I, I know everybody's like labels 1993 as like the new gen, like that pre new gen period is is uh where i'm at with the razor moment scott hall and he was such a big man he was such a big worker <clears throat> and then you know when you're in a world of like taker and yoko and sid and giant gonzalez you don't realize he's six two right bosh he's six seven six seven six seven he's a big you're, boy so you don't even, he's, you're he's probably like closer to like hogan's height yeah, and we're certainly going to get into a lot of what you just mentioned um, right now, Cheyenne. And, and, yeah. and again, well articulated, um, Bosh. Yeah, you're you're a Scott Hall super fan, and at the time, as Cheyenne just mentioned, in a sea of Bret Hart's, Undertakers, and Diesels. What made you connect with Scott Hall? I started watching maybe like late '94, early '95. So he was already like a baby face by then. I missed the ladder match with him and Sean, but like. I don't know, I think it just maybe it just hit me this week that when I started r- watching wrestling, it was maybe like a year and a half after my father left and being Cuban, 
Scott Hall was like the first guy that stood out to me. I don't know. I don't know if it's just maybe that had something to do with it, but like maybe it was like this is like the first like Cuban guy I can look up to. Like I had no prior knowledge of Scarface. I had no prior. I had no knowledge. I like I didn't know he was playing a character. I really thought like he was this Cuban guy, and and I, I think that's that that's what connected me to him right away was that he was Cuban and like I didn't really maybe outside of like I love Lucy. Like I don't remember seeing any other like. Cubans on TV, like on Nick at Night. <laughs> I'm gonna put air quote Cuban on that one, and we're gonna get to that yeah. later on too. So Scott Hall had a tremendously successful career, becoming equally popular in both WWF at the time and WCW. And by the way, throughout this podcast, I may veer between calling it WWF and WWE. That's just the name of the yeah, game, people. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not one of those. It's not that anymore. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 20 years later, it's still tough to like. (laughs) Oh, God. Same. So, Scott Hall was also regarded by fans and insiders as one of the best in the industry with a tremendous mind for in-ring performance and psychology. However, Scott Hall never held a world championship in the entirety of his run, and that's over 30 years. So, however, every story has a beginning, right? And it was in the late 80s in the AWA where Scott Hall's gifts started gaining attention. And uh, in our numerous back and forths trying to get the show going, Cheyenne, you mentioned that you're familiar with this period of Scott Hall's career. you have any insight on, on Hall's AWA days? Well, he started wrestling um, in Florida for various territories. And then he went to the AWA for Vern Gagne. And they put him in a tag team with another gentleman by the name of Kurt Henning. Oh, whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, who was Larry the Axe Henning's son, and he would eventually become Mr. Perfect. So there's this already foundation there for those two guys before they even make it to WWE. Um, I don't think they had a tag team name, but Scott Hall, before being Scott Hall, was uh, uh, Space Wolf Scott Hall, uh, or Space Coyote, one of the two. And he was in the uh, the tag team with Kurt Henning, and eventually they'd become AWA tag team champions at least once, maybe twice. Uh, what space wolf i think he was space he had a, he had a few weird names at that time <laughs> yeah uh star uh, or, or space uh starship something or like gator uh, scott hall i think was another one yeah gator scott hall a lot of weird weird names good god the 80s you, you yeah. know hey man you're a fountain of information because i didn't even know that i told you he's older than you <laughs> uh it was in 1991 at wcw as diamond stud that we first saw what would be the hints of of his later character. Yeah. And he was often accompanied to the ring by the chairman of the board of the Diamond Exchange, Diamond Dallas Page. And Scott Hall as Diamond Stud got rid of the 80s porn mustache that he had in the AWA. <laughs> and he was sporting long, slick back, greasy hair with a, like a long curl in the front yeah. and a toothpick. Also got rid of the, the perm that he had in the AWA for the slick. <laughs> and the perm. That's right. The 80s blowout. And he had a toothpick in his mouth. Now, Whereas he didn't make much of a splash there, he actually tagged up there with Kevin Nash, who at the time was known as Oz. Um, And and for that gimmick, he wore this giant (laughs) robe and like this full head Sultan mask that he would take off when he got to the ring. It was a horrible gimmick. And however, about a year later, Scott Hall found his way to the big time up north with Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation. and, And this would change his life forever. And... It was around this time that we started seeing our first introductory vignettes of his new character. And 
for anybody watching back then, and this is like kind of what I was raised on, this was the genius of Vince McMahon because he really knew how to draw heat and build the anticipation for incoming characters over several weeks with a series of short video segments that, that pretty much gave you the backstory and idea of that character. So that by the time they hit the ring in a few months, the fans were well conditioned about how to feel about the character. And just to give you examples, this was done previously with like the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, and um, the aforementioned Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect. And these first vignettes are hysterical. <laughs> Vince McMahon introduces the first character vignette by saying, quote, we take you now to a Cuban immigrant, an individual <laughs> who feel an individual who feels as though the streets of America are paved with gold. Here is Razor Ramon. Cue the dance song Cuban music, and we see this guy with black slick back hair, a toothpick in his mouth. He's got this white suit on, blazer jacket open with no shirt, gold chains around his neck, and he comes out and he's like Ramon, Razor Ramon, I come from the gutter. I know that. I got no education. Who needs it? Look at the gold. Look at my clothes. I'm a success. And then the signature flicking of the toothpick into the camera. I mean, the accent. Saying things like, Oye, mi chico. Or, hey, mang. However, Scott Hall was from Maryland. <laughs> did yeah? Did either of you guys at the time know Scott Hall was in Cuban? Like, were you aware? Because full disclosure, I bought it. I didn't know. I did. I mean, I was I was eight years old. I I didn't know until he went to WCW and started going by Hall. And then I think finding out he wasn't Cuban like hurt me more than finding out that wrestling was scripted. Like, it's like wait, wait, what? Well, hold on, what? And what? Then, what? Well, here's something you guys, I didn't know this until a couple of days ago. Obviously, Scott Hall stories are coming out left and right after his passing. Despite not being Cuban, he actually learned Spanish for the gimmick. Wow. I I did not know that. I didn't know that either. I didn't know that either. Somebody went to an autograph signing and um, it was a Puerto Rican father took his son. And so the dad is already wise to what wrestling is and isn't. So he's like, well, if he's going to play a Spanish person on television, he better know Spanish. And he had a full-blown conversation with Razor at the time uh, in Spanish. So Scott was committed. Wow. That's incredible. And that's wild because in retrospect, Scott Hall's Cuban accent is so horrible that it's hysterical. Yeah. And, and yeah. It just, but it just, in retrospect, makes the character that much better. As as if almost done with, with a wink, like, you get it. And, yeah. And, and, and we're all movie guys, so... It's funny how I think Scott Hall took advantage of the fact that it's based on Scarface. And once he heard that Vince and Pat Patterson had never seen Scarface, yeah, he could have done that pitch, that accent any way he wanted. He knew it was good enough for them to like it. It was hokey enough to entertain them. And he came out and quoted a bunch of Scarface, and that's how it came to fruition. So he totally... Just ahead of the curve, he he knew what to say, what to do, and he worked it well. Yeah, I, I heard that. I heard that story that he pitched it to Vince and Pat Patterson like that, and, and Vince was like, "Oh, I love it," and and they they had no knowledge of who Tony Montana from Scarface was. Zero. Yeah, like and Scott. It's funny, Scott couldn't believe that they'd never seen it, or at least heard of it. Like I know I probably saw Scarface for the first time when I was like fifteen, 
And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is where Razor got the get. Like, I, I was like, the first thing I thought was, oh my God, this guy sounds just like Razor Ramon. Like, not, I mean, and then I realized, okay, well, this came out a decade before Razor. And like, it was, it went on to be my favorite movie. And that's where I like named my gimmick JR uh, Scar after Junior Scarface. And I think it was like, I guess maybe that's, that's always been like, maybe that connection to Razor Ramon is also another reason why Scarface became like my favorite movie when I was a teenager. Wow. So like you, you kind of, it kind of like backwards engineered everything yeah. for you based on Razor. Yeah. Cause at, at eight years old, I wasn't watching Scarface. <laughs> so that being said, I mean, you just couldn't do this today, nor, nor should you. I mean, throughout the eighties and nineties, Vince McMahon was the master of cultural appropriation. You know, it's like, Oh, I got an Iranian guy, the Iron Sheik. I got a Japanese guy, Mr. Fuji. You know, we're going to take a Cuban guy called Reza Ramon. But man, lightning in a bottle because I was locked in. I hated this guy already, but yet I really liked him because I hated him. And at the time, I, I wouldn't want to know that his real name was Scott Hall and that he was really from Maryland because I was in. And, and Kayfabe was upheld and honored. And and Cheyenne, just like for the casual fan, can you describe what kayfabe is? So kayfabe is the inside wrestling term for maintaining the illusion of pro wrestling. So, for example, to give you an idea of what kayfabe is, if you would have seen Razor Ramon between 1992 and 1996 signing an autograph in the street or eating a meal, he would have been in his accent and he would have been talking like the character that is Razor Ramon. He would not have been talking like Scott Hall, you know, his real self. That's maintaining the illusion. He, Scott told me one time that he always carried toothpicks all the time when he was the Razor Ramon gimmick to maintain the illusion of being um, Razor Ramon, the character. It, kayfabe is staying in character the same way that good guys and bad guys on TV would not travel together because they were, they were heated enemies. They, they were rivals. So that's what kayfabe was. And when I met Scott Hall, he, he told me that he's like, uh, yeah, I used to carry toothpicks around all the time, man. Now I don't have to. Yeah, because back then, you weren't supposed to know who these guys really were. Right. Yeah. I mean, think of the mystique that would have been robbed of Hulk Hogan if the mass populace already knew that his na real name was Terry Bollea, or if everyone knew the Ultimate Warrior was really Jim Helwig. I mean, this was the face of wrestling in the 80s and 90s, and, and fans were fine with the fantasy. Mm -hmm. Now... Speaking of the vignettes, there were other ones of like razors strolling through like Miami, spitting fruit at innocent bystanders and being in his pimped out caddy with zebra skin interior. Women coming up to him saying like, Razor, I thought we had something. And he, he would say, we don't have something. You have something. And just him picking on lesser men. It's like that old like comic book ad of like the uh, like the bully kicking sand in the face of the nerd on the beach. Yeah. All the razor hallmarks. Chico. Something happened to the gold. Something happened to you. And of course, say hello to the bad guy. They cranked out these videos to draw heat. Yeah. And like, I mean, in retrospect, you guys have seen these. What did you think when you first saw these? I mean, obviously you were not in from the beginning, but, um, but what did you think upon seeing some of these videos? I mean, I think I saw them. I might have been a little older and I, it might have been like, I mean, maybe at the time I wasn't able, like I didn't have access to see these videos as a kid because there wasn't YouTube. There wasn't like DVDs with extras on them. So I probably 
didn't see it till like a little later on. So I think by that point, now I was comparing that to Scarface where I'm seeing him in the Cadillac and like all these quotes are like directly from Scarface. Like, so, um, I mean, they're, they're entertaining. I think I can imagine like my family looking at me as a kid, like thinking that he's really Cuban. Like, Oh, let's just, let's just let him have that. Like <laughs> <laughs> they are at best, um, especially in the like, current day, 2022 hysterical, and both cringeworthy, but yeah. you can find most of them on YouTube by searching Razor Ramon vignettes. Um, and, and and they work because by the time Razor made his in-ring debut in August 1992 on WWF Superstars, you were ready to hate the piss out of this guy. From a character-building sensibility, mission accomplished. Now, it was also around this time that Vince McMahon and WWF were embroiled in a very public steroid scandal and they also started losing some of their more established talent that they relied on for years as top stars like Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage made their exits for rival promotion WCW. One by one, some of the bigger size guys were either leaving the promotion or their best days were already behind them and they kind of fizzled away. So the WWF is faced with this problem and they had long leveraged guys like Hogan, Roddy Piper, and Andre the Giant to be the face of the company. The old guard was leaving the company, and this really diluted the product. So without them, what's the WWF to do? And this was when the company changed direction and went with the new generation route. And this is where they started to leverage some of the better performing mid-card workers whom were given a shot to rise up in the ranks and represent. So you had guys like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels who were now given the spotlight that was reserved for so long by the Hogans and Randy Savages for so many years. And it was at this time that Razor Ramon started gaining traction and racking up opponents and big events and and moments in the WWF. Shawn Michaels, who I just mentioned, at the time was regarded as an excellent worker and started receiving a tremendous push. Uh, Michaels now is widely regarded, arguably, as the greatest in-ring performer in the history of sports entertainment. I don't think, I say arguably, I don't think there are many people who would disagree with that. Bret Hart was given the top spot and carried the world title for quite some time. Other promising newbies came on the scene like um, Diesel, Kevin Nash, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and the one 2 3 kid, Sean Waltman. And Scott Hall was actually instrumental in what I think was one of the greatest storylines involving the one, two, three kid. Do you guys remember how he was put over? And by the way, put over is is such an industry terminology. For the casual fan, can, can either of you first describe what putting someone over means? Go ahead, perps. Uh, yeah, just uh, letting your opponent win the match and like elevating their career. Uh, I mean, I've gone back and seen all the stuff with one, two, three kid. And I thought it was really well done. Like, by the time I was I was a fan, they were already a team, and then they kind of started feuding again, where they were referencing back to like 1993 when when One Two Three Kid beat them, and and uh, yeah, so I thought it was it definitely helped uh, One Two Three Kid's career, like, and this was before I knew like about the click and how close all of those guys were. Right. Yeah. yeah so yeah, well said. The gimmick of that one was that One Two Three Kid was pitched as a jobber, and a jobber is like. They're like just like minor league chum for some of the bigger wrestlers to just cut through and, and, you know, in matches where they just like didn't pit them against like 
other top tier talent, so they wouldn't be much as events. So the one, two, three kid was kind of this jobber, and they actually called him Kid, the kid. Right. And Razor was scheduled for a match with him on Raw, and he kind of antagonized him and bullied him and and played it up that this kid was a nobody. And in this match where Razor clearly overpowered and dominated him for the majority of the match, this nobody pulled out a couple of clutch moves, pinned Razor, and got the three count. And the gimmick was the underdog upset. Tremendous. And then from then on, he was known as the one, two, three kid. And of course, regarded today as, as again, one of the best in-ring performers. But behind the scenes, Scott Hall came to form close relationships with Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels, Hunter and, and Sean Waltman. And the five became inseparable. And, and that chemistry filtered into the product they put into the ring as they all started to make names for themselves. Guys, in wrestling lore, there are probably, there's two matches that are regarded as the greatest of all time. I'm going to throw you one. One is Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage from WrestleMania 3. I mean, 30-something years later, everybody still talks about it. What is the other? Sean and Razor. The latter match at WrestleMania 10. WrestleMania 10. The latter match as, from WrestleMania 10. Sean and Razor Ramon. Which which one of you can best summarize the infamous ladder match at WrestleMania 10? Well, it was the first it was the first televised ladder match and the first one on pay-per-view. That alone is puts it head and shoulders above every other uh trailblazing match. I know purists are gonna say, well, there were dress rehearsals and they did it in Stampede Wrestling and on house shows and stuff. But ultimately, the first one on national television pay-per-view was Sean and Razor in the first one. The backstory on that was that Sean Michaels had been stripped of the Intercontinental Championship for not defending it. Um, so they vacated the title. They had the Battle Royal. The finalists of the Battle Royal would then have a singles match, and then the winner of the singles match would then be the new Intercontinental Champion. So the two finalists were Rick Martel and, and Razor Ramon, which we alluded to at the beginning of this program, and that got us the singles match. Razor then becomes the Intercontinental Champion, then, lo and behold, Shawn Michaels reappears on our screens, and he says, I never lost this belt, so I'm the real Intercontinental Champion. Very unique situation, because now you have a guy who never lost, and then you have a guy who has won. And that is everything that wrestling is about. And that set up the ladder match. Both of their Intercontinental Championships were held above the ring. And from a psychology standpoint, one of the best matches of all time, one of the best ladder matches of all time. It was truly, and in the greatest arena of all time, Master Square Garden. So it was all the ingredients that you need for magic. There were, in their simplicity, things that were done in that one ladder match <clears throat> that are not done in ladder matches today. And ladder matches happen every week, practically. So, you know, it was incredible. And think they did it with one ladder, guys. How many ladders yeah. do you see now? In a lot of usually go through they like 10, they break them. They, they... Oh, god, it, yeah. it looks like fucking Home Depot in the ring, <laughs> yeah. And now it's funny because Sean and Scott both said that when they were doing the loop, both the dress rehearsals and the rematches, that the one ladder would break on a house show. <laughs> god. So, think about that shit on a pay per view, yeah. So, yeah, it was significant, is 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 but only a word it's it's incredible it really is and everything about that right like 
the fact that the the titles were shined with a gold light, uh, the ropes, you know, the entrances, even the entrances, yeah, for that match are significant. Like you still you, you still see Sean, like Sean, like Razor going under the ladder and Sean like kind right. of wait, saying no Sean and going around the ladder. Like no, no, not me. Exactly. <laughs> Everything about that. Yeah, that 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 match is a gold standard. It's so damn entertaining, and so much so that we're talking about it to this day, and. It pretty much set the template for all ladder matches to follow. But it, it's worth noting that this ladder match was the first of two that they had. Yeah. Nobody talks about the rematch at SummerSlam 95, which for me, personally, arguably, I think... Oh, is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? For me, the rematch at SummerSlam 1995, I think arguably tells a better story. The ladder match at SummerSlam in 1995, even up until the very end... Such amazing moments and high drama. The very end, it was the curtain call before what is known as the real curtain call, but that, by the way, got some people into trouble, and I'll explain that later. I mean, there was a definitive victor in Shawn Michaels who cleanly ascended to the top of the ladder to get the intercontinental belt that was suspended from the top of the arena. Then to have, after the match, Razor storm the ring after, snatch the belt out of Shawn Michaels' hands, he aggressively like approaches Shawn Michaels and spins him around, yeah, and then hands him a belt as a token of respect, as to say, you know what, you beat me fair and square, you earned this, and you've earned my respect. You deserve it, and you deserve to have me hand it over to you. They shake hands. Razor raises Shawn's hand to proclaim him the winner, and the two embrace in a gesture of mutual respect. This was a true break in character where all these performers were, again, supposed to be total kayfabe and the people, the fans were in. They loved it. It put Shawn Michaels over big time who was on a tremendous trajectory and furthermore, made fans see Razor, Scott Hall, in a new light as a performer. Yeah, they were both babyface at the time and this was when I was watching and I remember hearing them, they were talking about, oh, they're having another ladder match but it was cool to see like they were both baby faces going into this. And like, so th there wasn't really like that heated feud going into the match or like there wasn't like that hatred towards each other like they did for the first one. But it was, I, I, I mean, I enjoyed that match as well. I don't remember offhand, believe it or not, um, the buildup in terms of how they got to the, the SummerSlam match as much as I do the, the WrestleMania 10 one. But it's exactly like, like Bosch had said. It, it was a different dynamic because they were both good guys, both baby faces. And I think going into it, it was the idea of... I've been, wa I've been watching those Raws lately. Yeah. Uh, I've been watching those, like, 95 Raws, and it really does, like, I just watched, like, that time period. It really does, like, come out of nowhere. Like, they're getting along, and then Gorilla Monsoon just announces they're having a ladder match yeah. for the IC title. And then, like, they have, like, a few little teases here and there where, like, one guy's getting jumped and they help the other and then they do like the little tug of war for the belt but there wasn't really like a big storyline going in was it like the was it like brett and sean where one minute they were gonna have a match and then a stipulation was added or was it announced as this is it it was announced as a ladder match okay it was originally supposed to be sid and sean like because i remember they were they were advertising sid and sean and then like out of nowhere, they were like, oh, no, it's going to be Razor in a ladder match. So I don't know if, like, Sid just no-showed or had softball or, or what. <laughs> so, yeah, they did both go in as faces. So 
there really wasn't a curtain call as we know it at the end, but still it was that acknowledgement of them being performers and kind of taking that bow as opposed to like two athletes. But I implore you, if you have Peacock, go to the WWE tab, look up SummerSlam 1995 and navigate to the ladder match. I mean, this one doesn't get talked about very much, but yeah, I don't know if maybe this was a case of we weren't, we're not delivering Sid and Sean who had already been feuding for months. Uh, so like, let's maybe give the fans something oh, that's bigger. That's a fair point. And like, I think that might have been it because like Sid was Sean's bodyguard going into the match with Diesel, and he turned on Sean, and like they were hyping up this match for a while. And I, I don't, I so I don't know if maybe it was just like Sid not being able to do it, and like, oh, let's and if, let's give the audience, let's give the fans something better than than they expected, right? Kind of a game time decision, yeah. but but kind of out of character for the way WWF WWE did things back then pitting two faces yeah. together. Um, again, um, it's a masterclass of in-ring storytelling, start to finish. I mean, hell, if you can't, if you don't have Peacock, look for it on YouTube. You, you could probably find it up there. So the new generation is is thriving for years, like, you know, riding on the talents of Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, Kevin Nash and Razor Ramon. But all good things come to an end. And I made mention of this earlier, the curtain call, the infamous curtain call, and this was an incident in wrestling history that involves Scott Hall. Who can tee up the curtain call here? Uh, well, the curtain call. So to to go back a little bit, uh, ultimately Scott Hall is unhappy as Razor Ramon in the WWE, and he's unhappy financially. And he approaches Vince McMahon and says, "Hey, I feel as if my pay is plateaued. How can I get more?" Uh, for whatever reason, either he reaches out to WCW and Eric Bischoff, or vice versa, and he's like, "This is." a third of the dates that I'm currently working for Vince McMahon and double and a half the money. And it's guaranteed. The dates were 50 WWF wrestlers at the time were on the road, 200 days or more. So for him, it was a no brainer. And Scott Hall actually gave 90 days notice uh, before the current call. So the current call culminates at Madison square garden in 1996. What, what month again, Bosch? Is that, is that, uh, May. Is May 96. May? Yeah. It's a house show. It's a house show at Master Square Garden. A house show is a non-televised show. So the current call in May of 96 is the last WWF appearance of not just Scott Hall, but Kevin Nash, who would ultimately decide to go to WCW as well um, bef- uh, before their last, this is their last commitment. And it's a big show. Sean and Diesel are in the main event in a steel cage match, like Purple Best Wishes guy alluded to. Um, Razors um, in one of the more prominent opening matches. Well, against Hunter. He was, I think Razor wrestled against Hunter that night. So, yeah, so they're all on this show. And, um, you know, there's this moment after the main event, Sean versus Diesel, Kevin Nash, where ultimately they do this show respect because Sean knows Kevin's going to leave. And that prompted Razor Ramon and Hunter Hearst Helmsley to come out and all say goodbye to each other and go their separate ways yeah like after that diesel michaels match they you know all enter the ring and you know again like you know razor and sean were were the two baby faces and and yeah you know and then diesel joins in and you know hunter and they they share this huge like long group hug and then the form the four of them turn to the crowd with their arms raised together like Kind of like the way actors do at the end of a Broadway show, you know? And fans were 
I think kind of either ecstatic or confused because yeah. this final bout, now known as the curtain call, <laughs> forever changed the face of professional wrestling because WWF upper management were pissed yeah. when they saw what went down. The images of baby faces and heels together were always protected inside and outside the ring. Hence the terminology, of course, which you've heard throughout the podcast, kayfabe. So many feel these four superstars destroyed what was protected for so many years. And word is that um, Vince McMahon lost his shit and was looking for retribution. And Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were on their way out to join Ted Turner's WCW. Shawn Michaels was the champion, so you couldn't do much to him. However, Triple H, who was on his way to receive a decent push, kind of... He was going to win the King of the Ring. He was going to win the King of the Ring. They they had a whole program worked out for him. That's right. He bore the brunt of McMahon's wrath on this one and was relegated to mid-card matches and placement like that for years after. I mean, it was thanks to that that we, we got Austin 316. Right. Yeah, and, and everything's like kind of a ripple effect. And yeah. so, but however, so like, you know, Scott Hall leaves for WCW, and this is kind of where business really picks up for him. Leaving the WWF behind. One night, Scott Hall makes a surprise appearance on WCW Monday Nitro. And it's a shocker because let's set the stage here. This is 1996, and it's in the early days of the internet. Don't have pod. We didn't have podcasts or dirt sheets really back then. So I had no clue. Yeah, right. Most fans didn't know. I I didn't know about the curtain call. I think in a segment, maybe like around the time BX formed, like a year and a half later. Yeah, same. They showed it on the screen to like mess with Vince, and even then, I still didn't understand what was going on in the clip. Maybe so I was like a lot older and like, okay, they were all all like, see. Did anybody here, in retrospect, considering your age or lack of inside knowledge? Did anybody here think like did the four of them just make a super group at a house show? Because if I mean, you watch the again, clip, I didn't, that, didn't that, that kind of has that perception, right? Again, I didn't see this clip until '97 when Hunter and Sean were playing it as DX. So by that point, they were gone. Yeah, and and yeah, exactly as Bosch is just saying. Like, I really didn't have knowledge of that. That wasn't really quote public knowledge until. Years right. later, and I believe it was a fan video. Um, it was a yeah. house show. So, so again, you know, the early days of the internet, the infancy of the internet, most fans didn't know, A, that the, the curtain call happened, B, that Hall yeah. had even left the WWF, much less that he signed with WCW. Info, info yeah. like that just wasn't accessible at the time. So when Hall arrives on WCW, it looks <laughs> like the WWF is invading. Yeah. And it's in the middle of somebody else's match. He's like, you see him in the background cutting through the crowd of fans. In street clothes. In street clothes. Yeah. Not in his razor gear. Yeah. I remember this vividly. I remember like it, it had to be during a commercial because I would always like watch Raw and then turn on Nitro during the commercials. And I'm just like, I see him like walking in the background. I was like, wait, is that who I think it is? What, what's going on? Like, I remember yeah. as a kid, like just freaking out. Like, what is he doing here? Because I think I know Luger debuted on that first Nitro, but I didn't have that attachment to Luger. And Medusa did the thing where she dropped the belt in the garbage, and that was pretty crazy. But like seeing Scott Hall, like Razor Ramon, show up, and I'm like, Oh yeah, that blew the, that blew the first two things out of the water. Scott oh my god, it. yeah. And then and then two weeks later, Diesel's there, and I'm like, What what is happening? Like what is what's going on? Like, and I think it wasn't until like 
Eric, like Bischoff said, do you guys work for WWF? And they said no. Uh, there, and then that's when he power bombed. Uh, yeah, that was at uh, the back. Bischoff. Man, it set the stage yeah. for so much because for an actual promotion to acknowledge the other, it's not something that was yeah. done at the time. So to see Scott Hall cutting through the crowd and, and jumping the guardrail, grabbing a mic, and saying, "You people know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. You want a war." You're going to get one. And, and by the way, all of a sudden, yeah. the Cuban accent's gone. <laughs> it's right. gone. And Well, I think they originally sued him because he was using the accent. Oh. And, and he stopped using it. But WWE sued him Correct. Uh, for using the accent. If you watch the first two or three right before Kevin Nash debuts, because remember, he comes out through the crowd, then he confronts Bischoff face-to-face, and then he confronts Bischoff again. Those yeah, and then still two weeks later, Nash comes out. Yeah, he kind of like he kind of veers in and out of it, like until like you know Nash. I mean, he's also probably been used to doing it. He's been used to doing it for the last three, four years. Yeah. So it's like second nature. Like I'm in front of a camera, I'm on a mic, I'm talking with this accent. Yeah, but but really, like, so Scott Hall is the catalyst of this thing that really changes everything. And just going back to what you guys were saying earlier, like you know, Kevin Nash then arrives. There's this segment where they splash. Eric Bischoff off the announced platform and through a table and broke the fourth wall, calling out talent like Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan and, you know, calling Hogan out for doing Thunder in Paradise, which was a series he was working on. And this was gritty and refreshing and, dare I say it, great TV show, edgier than the WWF at the time. And this gave birth to the Outsiders, which was the tag team of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash going by their real names. Yeah, and for weeks, like they wouldn't say the, their names, and then like when they did debut, I was like, "What the hell is Hall and Nash?" I had no <laughs> idea, really. I was like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> no, that's Razor and Diesel, <laughs> right? But it really set the stage for like how a lot of it is kind of done today. All right, so flash forward, July seventh, nineteen ninety six. Yes, a date which will live in infamy: the infamous Bash at the Beach. Hall and Ash, of course, became the outsiders. They're in a match with um, Randy Savage and Sting, and there is a rumored third man that they keep talking about. And Luger, Luger, Luger was in the match and got injured at the beginning of the match. That's right. Luger was in the match. Yeah. And, of course, you know, this is after a long absence. All of a sudden, who comes marching down the aisle? Hulk Hogan. Seems like all is saved yeah. until he enters the ring. And drops the leg on Randy Savage. Your third man is Hulk Hogan. Hogan is a heel. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall helped usher in the biggest heel turn in the history of sports entertainment when Hulk Hogan turns heel at Bash at the Beach and joins them. This was the beginning of so much. It was such a genius move. And with that came the birth of the NWO, the New World Order, this this rogue, destructive group that ran rampant in WCW and gained members along the way. It also ran rampant on WWF's ratings as the WCW started leading and it continued for weeks. And we know that to be what? The Monday Night Wars. The Monday Night Wars. I mean, you know, there are they, they both have, both organizations have competing flagship shows on Mondays. You had Monday Night Raw and WCW Nitro. The distinction was was that Nitro was live. 
Raw was pre-taped. And so we had the Monday Night Wars, and this encapsulated a lot. It ushered in what was known as the Attitude Era, which gave birth to, like, Steve Austin and D-Generation X, Triple H. The WWF embraced edgier content that was sexualized and super violent, and, and they started to break the fourth wall and acknowledge the other organization. Monday, Monday Nitro got dirty, and they would give out results because they were live. They'd be like, hey, if, uh, if you want to know the results to tonight's uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> WWF Raw, Mick Foley won, wins the championship. Just wanted to let you know. And it, this was some dirty shit, guys. And um, <laughs> there was an invasion um, storyline from, from WWF where they pulled up to a, a WCW show outside the arena in a tank. Like, yeah. unsanctioned. This was like... They were not welcome there. This is not a story from the WCW end. So mm-hmm. it was a really great time to be a fan. And Scott Hall was at the center of it. In the Monday Night Wars, it, and this is the stat, it went on for five years and six months. It's crazy. Yeah. The real winner was the fan. Yeah. But the Monday, you know, Monday Night Wars ended. March 26, 2001, after WWF purchased WCW, and WCW held its final edition of Monday Nitro. Mind blown, Vince McMahon appears live on both Raw and Nitro simultaneously at the same, t- at the same time as part of this special yeah. dual simulcast with Vince at Raw. And you could watch it on both stations. I was flipping back and forth between USA and TNT. Which for you as a wrestling fan is like the definition of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Oh my god, it's it, it really is like like say if you you know you have like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars and think about if they just like cross mingled both those those franchises in the same film. Yeah. You know, like I'd get sick all over myself. It, it's it was just <laughs> unbelievable at the time. So but the other thing is that what's often or not often talked about, depending on who you speak to, is that these sports entertainment performers, they're on the road for 300 days a year sometimes over 300 days a year and it takes its toll physically emotionally being away from your family you know and and then there's the maintaining the high that you feel in the ring when you're not and like many and and being a wrestling fan is is hard because we you know over the course of of any number of years they just have some of the greats have dropped like flies hall descends into some harmful vices by abusing Drugs, alcohol, painkillers, and, and other prescription drugs. And, and ultimately, Hall, a top talent and contributor, found himself back at WWE. However, Hall was only back with the WWE for a couple of months as, as they knew that he had some personal issues. And he really wasn't performing quite at a level that he once did. So shortly after he returned, WWE and Hall mutually parted ways in... Even though he continued to work in independent promotions, this is kind of where his life really spirals downward. Um, you know, a superstar once on top, he's now plagued by, and this is public knowledge, you can find it anywhere, he's plagued by multiple arrests for disorderly conduct, criminal mischief, multiple DUIs, and, and his life is just like really nosediving. And at one point on the record, Hall had been to rehab 10 times. And to their credit, the WWE financed multiple treatments for Hall. Yeah. Now, 
just to delve into some of Hall's past, which we didn't touch on, before his wrestling career, he was in his 20s. He was a bartender at a strip joint, and he got into an altercation with someone. Yeah. A gun was involved, and unfortunately, he wound up, you know, shooting and killing a guy. And he served time for it. And after he got out, you know, he kind of turned his life around and got involved in wrestling. But the guy had demons, and, and many feel that this unfortunate incident may have plagued him for the rest of his life. Yeah, it always haunted him, I think. Just like, and he didn't really reveal it until like decades later. But I think, like, maybe it, that's how long it took him to process that, like, this might yeah. be the cause of why I'm going through all of this and why I have these demons that I have because this is still haunting me. Like, I think like deep down, like there's a part of him that was like, well, the guy was out to kill me and I defended myself, but I still like took somebody's life. So like it, it did yeah. affect them. Right. Yeah. And and so with that, you know, the guy had his demons and he got to a point where, you know, he's now out of the WWE. He's doing independence. He's, you know, kind of not being great to himself. And he got to a point where he was in pretty bad shape. He had a pacemaker for his heart. He was battling seizures. And there's a well-documented incident in 2011 where he was going to headline an independent wrestling show. And he was literally wheeled into the event in a wheelchair. And this was two days after being hospitalized for seizures. Yeah. There's some pretty horrible video out there of this appearance of Scott Hall stumbling through the curtain towards the ring and, yeah. and looking completely out of it. And it's hard to watch. And it's just... yeah. He's really worse for wear, and he literally had to be walked to the ring by by two handlers. And and this ensuing match, if you want to call that, it's it's pretty cringeworthy to watch because mm-hmm. you see a performer, a great performer, at a low point, and you know it's out there. But and this progresses for a while. Well, there was a there was an e uh, there was an e sixty piece on yeah on that on that, match. On that incident, and, I, and that was when I saw it. Like I remember like. I remember watching it like this is when I was interning at WWE that semester and I was like on the train coming back home watching that like in tears on the train like that's how bad it was I'm like I like I think seeing that footage was when it hit me like I don't think he's gonna like make it I don't think like selfishly I don't think I'm gonna have a chance to like ever meet him at a convention I don't think he's gonna like I didn't think he was gonna make it like past that year and I think seeing like I know you're about to mention like the D, uh, DDP like seeing DDP make that progress with Jake and then hearing that like they were going to bring Hall in and like they, that was like that little bit of hope of like okay maybe maybe there's a chance here and like and even then I didn't think there was much of a chance so like seeing that transformation like it's probably the reason I do DDP yoga like I remember seeing DDP and 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 Jake at that uh at the WrestleCon for Mania in 2013 and I think that was like when Hall was just starting to like get back into shape and get back on DDP yoga and like I remember, like, I think he had the hip surgery around that, around that time, and like, I asked DDP, like, how he's doing. He said, "Oh, he's doing great. Like, like he's definitely making progress." Like by by that point, like Jake had already made like tremendous pr- progress and was in incredible shape and and looked amazing. So, yeah. Sorry for getting ahead, but yeah. No, it's fine. It's fine. You know, it's yeah. the theater of the mind, man. This is live yeah. quotes live. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, conversely, like I think by his peers and even many fans, like we were kind of like, unfortunately, like waiting for him to die. You know, it was just so yeah. self-destructive. And yeah, to to your note, this yeah. is where DDP Diamond Dallas Page 
enters and, 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 you know, Diamond Dallas Page is credited with forming this tremendous yoga movement post his wrestling career known as DDP Yoga. And he has been credited with like really um, bringing people back to life and getting them out of some bad health situations. And he's credited mm. with bringing former wrestlers like Jake the Snake back from the brink of self-destruction. So, yeah, like you said before, DDP moved Scott Hall into his place and put him through a wellness program over the course of many months. Yeah. Scott Hall gets sober, gets back in shape, find his, finds his way back to a better and consistently sober life. And and DDP is regarded by many in the, in the industry as being one of the true stand-up guys who would give anybody the shirt off of his back. He threw Scott Hall a lifeline. And... This newfound sobriety and commitment to himself put him back in the good graces of the WWE. And it wasn't before long that Scott Hall was first inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2014 and gave a well-received and memorable acceptance speech. Oh, it's one of the best ones ever. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and, and sitting here now and seeing it, like, you know, it's it gives you chills. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Since then, he has made appearances at cons and some WWE events or programs, documentaries, as he embraced this new lease on life. As a person, I've heard nothing but good things about him. I mean, Cheyenne, you alluded to some Scott Hall stories that you had. Yeah, so I I got into going to wrestling conventions with, with Bosch and stuff um, after my experience at uh, WrestleMania 30 in New Orleans. It's my first WrestleMania, so naturally I want to do everything. I want to do fan access and everything. Um, and at the time, I wasn't in the wrestling business yet. I knew I was going to start it, so I kind of said this might be my last time being a fan, you know, because when you're in wrestling, stuff like that is frowned upon, you know, going as a, as a fan, as a mark. So, you know, I saw WrestleMania 30 as kind of like my goodbye tour. And um, <clears throat> I met a lot of wrestlers uh, and legends that week. And I actually got to see, so Access was at Building A, and right across the street was WrestleCon. And I literally saw when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash left WrestleCon to get in their cab to go to the Hall of Fame ceremony. Um, fast forward, the next day, uh, some fans had found out where the WWE hotel was. WrestleMania weekend, uh, they put everybody in the same hotel, and... That way, you know, WWE logistics and travel can get everybody in and out wherever they need to go, whether it's a signing, uh, an event, whatever. And we'd found out which hotel it was. And ultimately, it's a hotel. You can't stop anybody from going in because they may be a patron. And we just decided to go in and see if we would get lucky and meet anybody. And who do we see inside of the, the hotel cafe? Scott Hall. Scott Hall, one of my childhood heroes. It's me. My nephew is about eight or nine years old at the time and his parents and uh, my nephew, who's a big NWO fan, thanks to the WWE tape library and stuff like that, goes running to Scott Hall. You would think Scott Hall is going to be on Raw that night. And he goes running up to him and he hits him with the two sweet. And Scott's like, hey, man, what's happening? And he you see you see him creating this moment for this kid. And I'm just kind of laying out watching this happen. 
you know, my, my nephew, Matthew is like a kid in a candy store, you know, Scott's talking to him like they're best friends. And he's like, yeah, I watch the NWO all the time. You know, my, my uncle's a big wrestling fan. You're the reason that, that I know who he's the reason I know who you are. And he's like, oh, so he's the nerd and you're the fan. And, and my nephew's like, yeah, yeah, he's a nerd. And, um, so then Scott Hall waved me to come in. I shake his hand and I thank him for everything he's done in the business and his turnaround because it's 2014. Scott Hall at the time just went into the Hall of Fame. This is the culmination of his, his 180 in life. You know, I'm like seeing this man change in front of my eyes. And uh, now people are like too sweeting him as, you know, they're passing by us in the restaurant. And I'm like, man, you are still so over. And he's like, yeah, man, I just, I just wish it was more female fans than you guys. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, you can't win them all. <laughs> so, so uh, my nephew asked for, for a picture. And he's like, yeah, man, here, I'll tell you what. Why don't you use this in the picture? And he pulls a toothpick out of his pocket. And he's like, he's like, yeah, let me get one, too. And I'm like, you don't have any extras? He's like, no, man, I don't have to carry them as much as I did in the 90s, dude. I never left home without a two boxes of toothpicks and uh so we end up you know getting him a toothpick through the restaurant and i got this cool photo with him and my nephew toothpicks in hand too sweet and uh, i don't think i have a toothpick there's another photo where it's the three of us um but you saw him genuinely uh create this moment for my nephew and then i got to meet him a few more times at conventions and cons i have a royal rumble 93 poster signed by him and brett um because they main evented Royal Rumble 1993. It's funny. He uh, he believes that that is he and Brett's best match versus Brett thinks that him and Scott at King of the Ring is their best match. Interesting. So it's pretty cool meeting Scott at one convention. He says, yeah, this is the best match me and him ever had. I loved it. Da, 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 da. Brett says otherwise. And then I go to meet Scott again. And he's like, Brett said that, that, that the King of the Ring one's better. I was like, yeah, I got him to sign this poster first. And he's like, oh, man, I, I don't know what he's thinking or what he used to think. But the Royal Rumble one's a better match, man. We just had everything that night. Man, it, it seems like, you know, and it, you read this a lot, is that he was just a really stand-up guy and, and in recent years embraced the attitude of gratitude. Um, More recently, and at the top of the program, you know, this is a tribute show for Scott Hall. And he had passed away on March 14th, but in the couple of days before, in the couple of days before, reports came in that that Hall suffered complications from a hip surgery and had suffered three heart attacks and was on life support. And it was, I guess, on on March 14th throughout the day, I think the the family made the decision to take him off. And on March 14th, Kevin Nash dropped this tribute on Instagram and it's heartbreaking um, and just like a, Two sentence excerpt from that. He said, I love Scott with all my heart, but now I have to prepare my life without him in the present. I've been blessed to have him as a friend that took me at face value and I him. And that sucks. And as as the writing was on the wall, tributes poured in well before his passing was confirmed. That night, WWE Raw, March 14th, didn't open with a Scott Hall remembrance card. And I remember checking my phone like over and over to see like if Scott Hall had officially passed away. Um, Kevin Owens opens up the show. 
to respond to Stone Cold accepting his challenge to face him at WrestleMania. The first word, the first words out of his mouth as he grabs the mic are, hey, yo. No doubt in respectful tribute to Scott Hall, whom prior to the show was officially announced as having passed on. In the third quarter of the show, the WWE aired a beautiful tribute video and, of course, you know, a remembrance placard. Scott Hall was regarded as having one of the most beautiful minds for the wrestling business. An amazing performer who gave it all, whether he was Diamond Stud, Razor Ramon, or, or just Scott Hall. He didn't ooze machismo as much as he did ooze class as a consummate performer. Ron, Cheyenne, I want to thank you both for taking part in this special tribute to Scott Hall. Now, you you guys, conversely, are also involved in the wrestling community and socials. Like, where, where can people find you? Um, yeah, I'll start with you, Ron. Um, I have a YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com slash prod. So, I mean, there's just like a variety of everything. I did a documentary last year on like my backyard wrestling, just like kind of like wanted to edit it in the style of a WWE documentary or like I do over the last year do vlogs going to like different wrestling events and, and stuff like that and like other like personal stuff on there uh, i'm on instagram at purple best wishes guy uh, that's where i post all like my wrestling stuff so yeah you can find me on there shine what do you got well i got i got a couple things but the main thing that i want to plug is uh if if you get time today uh obviously i'm going to come across as biased but if you get time today definitely watch um bosh purple best wishes guys um documentary um as a big vlogger as a big documentary guy especially fan made ones it's one of the best things i've ever seen his documentary in terms of an editing standpoint really shines so if you have time today on on this sunday if you're having you know lazy new york weather like like i am you know definitely try your best to to watch it because it's it's just really really good i know as his friend it sounds super biased but it's an awesome documentary um that's touching but but what you didn't tell everybody is that he gives you 10 percent. no <laughs> no no he actually he actually gives me 10 percent of nothing <laughs> he gives me eight percent of nothing and 100 percent of love that's what it is <laughs> i love it I, I love it um in terms of me you can catch me at linktree.com slash shy the voice all my social media is on there my youtube channel my facebook fan page my tiktok that I uh, almost never use my Instagram and you can tweet me on Twitter uh, linktree.com slash uh, Cheyenne, the voice. And you can catch me next week, Saturday, March 26th for ECWA for the historical super eight tournament. I'll be doing all the backstage interviewing and social media coverage. That's going to be in Morganville, New Jersey. And then you can catch me one more time, April the 8th for ECBW adrenaline TV tapings. And to find out what my other date is going to be in April, Catch me on social media, specifically my Instagram, linktree.com slash Cheyenne Voice. Excellent. Now, wait, guys, one last thing I got to ask. Must watch Scott Hall moments. What do you got? Bosh, you first. I think one moment, I like it's not even like a big moment. It's like one moment I kept seeing throughout the week was like that shot where like a fan throws a beer into the ring during like this big NWO segment and like the beer hits Hall on the head and he just like, takes the beer and like slicks his hair back and smirks at the camera like I don't, just the fact that he was like so flawless with that moment like most people would be like thrown off and like not know what to do but like the fact that he like 
in that moment just like came out looking even cooler exactly. than he already does. Like I think that's like the one moment I kept seeing throughout the week that like every time I would see it like pop up on Twitter it would just pop me. True testament to like Scott Hall and his 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 dedication to like you know yeah the role and the character and the business. Um, Cheyenne, what about you? What do you got? Must watch Scott Hall moments. Uh, must watch Scott Hall moments. You got to see when Scott Hall rolls up on WCW Nitro for the first time. You got to see Scott Hall bringing in Kevin Nash on Nitro. You got to see the Great American Bash 1996 when they powerbomb Eric Bischoff through a table to set up for Bash of the Beach 1996. I highly recommend that you watch Scott Hall and Kevin Nash at the first uh, WCW, uh, excuse me, the first NWO sold out pay-per-view when they're defending the tag team titles. Uh, Hall and Nash against Harlem Heat is another good one from Halloween Havoc 96. Um, uh, Scott and Goldberg is another great match that you could do. Another great moment is uh, the if you watch anything with Scott and Stone Cold in terms of the rivalry building up for uh, WrestleMania 18, that's another thing that you want to check out. And, you know, some of Scott's stuff in TNA, while it's not necessarily his glory years, it's entertaining as hell, if nothing else. Um, in terms of matches, Scott, you know, Razor Ramon versus Ted DiBiase, Razor Ramon versus Rick Martel, of course, either ladder match of your choosing. Uh, Razor Ramon versus Bret Hart, and uh, believe it or not, uh, Scott Hall versus Jeff Jarrett in TNA. Again, one of the later last matches. It's something you could tune into uh, any day of the week. Excellent. Yeah, solid list, guys. I mean, for, for me, I said this earlier, um, the latter match. Not the first one at WrestleMania 10, but SummerSlam 1995. I favor that one. Sean and Razor, just almost 28 minutes of, of two of the best in-ring performers of their time putting on an amazing show and telling an incredible story. Um, also, I said this earlier, the early introductory vignettes, they are hysterical and, 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 and horribly dated. <laughs> and um, and really, um, we spoke about this earlier, the great ESPN documentary from about 10 years ago called The Wrestler, Scott Hall. It's raw, it's open, it ain't pretty. And Scott Hall is extremely transparent in it. And lastly... And, and really, this is how I want to remember Scott Hall, is, of course, his famous Hall of Fame speech, um, his first induction in 2014. He had come back from so much. It's perfection in that it's both reflective and introspective, and it resonates. Um, and we all know the quote. Hard work pays off. Dreams come true. Bad times don't last. But bad guys do. Rambash, Cheyenne Ortiz, once again, I want to thank both of you for being a part of this and sharing all the great stories with Scott Hall and what he gave you. And and Scott Hall gave us a lot. So thank you, Scott Hall, for so many indelible moments and memories. Guys, thanks once again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And Scott Hall, hey, yo. Rest easy, bad guy. Hey, everybody. Just remember that What a Time to Be Alive can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, God damn it, wherever most podcasts can be found. So hit that download button and please subscribe so you can hear all the other episodes in the archives. And be sure to follow What a Time to Be Alive on the socials. Lou Acosta here saying thanks for downloading this episode of What a Time to Be Alive.